0: When should I do this, Ryan? What? Begin. You should begin right now. Right now. History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge is to find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to...
1: History happened
0: everywhere. Listening to History Happened Everywhere, I'm Pete Goddard, I'm here in the studio with the mighty Ryan Weir. Hello everyone. Uh, Ryan, you have a beard, correct? I do, yes. Uh, but I've also known you without a beard. Uh, really? Yeah. That must have been a long time. It How was, was a long have time? known each other? Uh, 10, 15, 30 Wrong. years.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, no, you've you've had not a beard and various forms of beard in the time I've known you. True, yes. Uh, and I had a question for you. As okay. a, I've never really bearded. No. Uh, when you shave, you go from bearded to non-bearded. Yes. Do you, A, shave it all off, yes. or B, go through various beard stylings to oh. see how they look before you get right back to nothing? <laughs> Is this a gentle way of asking if I've ever done a Hitler moustache? Well, I mean, uh, that was going to be one of the subtle <laughs> questions, Yes. <laughs> I was more like, what's your? do you kind of go, I'm going to try a Wolverine and then a full moustache or then go down to a yes. pencil moustache and Errol Flynn, a soul patch? What's the, what's the order? The answer is yes, 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 <laughs> <and>
1: yes. <laughs> whenever I've had to do it. And even sometimes just when I'm just maintaining this beard, I
0: will still yeah. shave extra little bits off just to see what it would look like. My personal favourite for you, is, which I think you pull off well, as a sort of Elizabethan gent. Yeah. Three Musketeers look. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. I think you're one of the few people I know who could pull off for rough. (laughs) (laughs) So on my brother's stag
1: do, we went to Vienna and there is a stand there where you can dress up in oldie worldie clothes and have your photo taken using oldie worldie cameras. See, I've seen Western versions of those where you dress up like a cavalryman or something. Exactly. Well, this one was sort of Edwardian and so we were given top hats and sort of Sherlock Holmesy type stuff. Exactly, yeah. And honestly, I felt more comfortable wearing that. <laughs> Did you find
0: out you should I have been the picture and an Edwardian. Thought,
1: Why didn't I live then? <laughs>
0: So, like, if there was an equivalent, like, what would yours be? So, I have always had an affinity for the hippie movement of the 1960s in America. Okay, so sort of bell-bottom jeans and... Leather-fringed waistcoats and all of that. Paisley and patterns, love, love, love it.
1: I don't see that. I see the Flintstones with you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I could rock a bear, a bear skin. <laughs> yeah, You'd make a good Barney Rubble. I'd be a terrible Barney. I might be a Wilmer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. What we're here to talk about is, well, what is it? Well, I don't know. I've forgotten as well. We can always look it up. Let's look it up. Okay, I'll hit the button. <laughs> so let's switch it on. Okay, we're up and running. Okay, Ryan, are you ready? So your country is... Ireland. Oh, nice. Your time period is... The Age of Imperialism. Okay, uh, then I guess I just need a topic. And the topic is... Oh, fingers crossed. Mountain. Mou- mountain. Yeah, like, those like all the mountains in like and- Dublin's on... <laughs>
1: all the irish mountains all those
0: irish mountains
1: okay so all right so our next episode will be mountains in ireland during 1800 to 1914
0: all right i'll do it i look forward to seeing what you make of it so mountainous Ireland. (laughs) yeah that's right I'm assuming. But <laughs> well, I'm willing to find out. I'm hopefully <laughs> I have my suspicions that that may be challenging, but uh, I'm coming into this with an open mind, Ryan, so off you go. Yeah, I was super nervous
1: when I got that one. I thought, well, what on earth Are there mountains? Because like, I know from within you know, the UK, there's Ben Nevis, there's Snowden, people talk about Scaffold Pike and you know, the Three Peaks. No one really talks about the mountains <laughs> in Ireland. <laughs> but first... We are talking St. Patrick's Day. We're talking the colour green. We're talking top of the morning and leprechauns having the crack. River dancing, kissing the Blarney Stone. Liam Neeson, Brendan Gleeson, Tato's, soda bread, and of course, the black stuff. Ebony nectar, a pint of plain. That's right, Guinness. (laughs) Because we're in the Emerald Isle. We're in
0: Ireland. So one of the big challenges is trying to get through without accidentally trying to do the accent. Isn't it's it? going to happen it's at some point, <laughs> and I'm so sorry to anyone listening. Before we start,
1: how about we have a, a nice glass of Guinness? How do, you, how do you fancy that? I
0: love a Guinness. I would
1: be delighted. All right, well, while the music's playing, I'll oh, well, just get one.
0: Diddly 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 Okay, well, what
1: do okay,
2: we have here?
0: Po- um, this is different to what I was
1: expecting, I have to tell you. Yeah, this is the Guinness West Indies Porter, which is an original recipe from 1801, mm. which just so happens to be within our time period. Excellent. Right at the start of it, in fact. So oh um, let's have a pour. Let's have a pour and a drink. All right, there we go. All well, right. Good. Okay, so what we say is we raise our glasses up high and we say... Sláinte. Sláinte.
0: Mmm. The taste of 1801 Ireland right oh, there. That's delicious. I remember when I first tried Guinness and I thought it was horrible, but times have changed.
1: (laughs) Okay, so yeah, we're in the Emerald Isle. We're in Ireland, um, which is funny because it is an island in the North Atlantic, just west of Great Britain. It covers five-sixths of the island. The Republic of Ireland is an independent nation and a member of the EU. The remaining part of Ireland, that that final sixth, is in the north. It's Northern Ireland and it's a territory considered by some uh, to be part of the United Kingdom. Sort by controversial. Indeed. But we're talking about the Republic of Ireland. It's 84,000 square kilometres, which is eight islands in a France. Okay, I I had a feeling that it was smaller than that, but that's um That's a pretty decent size. Yeah. It is largely low-lying, lovely, beautiful, scenic, picturesque fields and rivers that lend themselves more to farming more than anything else. I guess they call it the Emerald
0: Isle for a reason. Very, very beautiful.
1: It has a population of 5 million as of 2020, yet 40 million Americans with Irish ancestry.
0: It's a particularly American thing as well, isn't it, to describe yourself as Irish? Mm. Maybe several generations back, but it uh, tends to to stick. and we'll perhaps come to the reason
1: why in the in the history section of this coming up. A quarter of the population, so just over a million people living in just the capital city of Dublin. Irish is the official language, which is very similar to a sort of Scottish Gaelic. All official documents are written both in Irish and in English as well. The Irish language sort of decreased in use over over time, but it's still today more widely read, spoken and understood than during most of the 20th century. So it's not dead by any any means. Something of a revival? They have a national
0: anthem. Do you want to hear it? I definitely do. And I'm hoping it's not what I've got going on in my head, which is a really stereotypical Irish jig. <laughs> ah,
1: dang it. <laughs> no. Here's the National
0: Anthem.
1: <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> no, I got the wrong one. That's the wrong track. This is the National Anthem. It's, uh, it's called The Soldier's Song.
0: Oh, I like it. It's got a straight jaunty, straight from the opening. But if I played it, you wouldn't instantly think Ireland, would I would you? not, no. needs more fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite joyful, though. Yeah, I've, this has definitely got a, a happy march towards the future feel about it. I want to join in. It slows bit down a oh bit dear. there. Oh, dear. Take it to the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. I like this one. This is this is in my top ten top ten pretend- sure. national anthem. Yeah. If you were to say I'm going to pop a national anthem on, this would definitely be a positive reception.
1: I love the end. That was great. That's a really good one, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I thought you'd like that one. And we should probably explain to those people who aren't unaware of the previous piece of music that it was the opening music for Father Ted, a absolutely top-draw comedy programme from the 90s, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you've not seen it, do yourself a favour. Google
1: it and start watching it today. Yeah, if you've not seen Father Ted, you are missing out.
2: Dougal, Dougal, do you remember Sister Sumter? Uh, no. <laughs> she was here
0: last year. And then we stayed with her in the convent, back in Kildare. Do you remember it?
2: Ah, you do. (laughs) And then you were hit by the car when you went down to the shops for the paper. You must remember all that. And then you won £100 with your lottery card. Ah, you must remember it, Dougal. And weren't you accidentally arrested for shoplifting? (laughs) remember we had to go down to the police station to get you. And the police station went on fire? (laughs) And you had to be rescued by helicopter? Do you remember? You can't remember any of that. Huh? The helicopter. When you fell out of the helicopter <laughs> over the zoo. Do you remember the tigers? <laughs> you don't remember. <sighs> you were wearing your blue jumper. Ah, sister, so hello there.
1: Okay, island facts. I'm scared. Island facts. <laughs> Why did you get scared by my facts? I don't, I don't know. I just do. Yeah. Okay, uh, 1959. <laughs> yes. A lion was used by MGM movie studio uh in the opening clip for its movies oh yeah another one i'm familiar with the lion
0: kevin or whatever his name was (laughs) sure well that lion was born in dublin zoo oh wow it was an irish lion oh you could tell because it's roar our irish roar uh dracula was irish no
1: way well no not really bram stoker was irish uh he was the author of dracula so I like to think that Dracula was Irish.
0: Well, I mean, on the subject of Ireland, literary greats are plenty: Oscar Wilde, James Joyce, Sam Beckett. Those are some pretty good, strong they're ones.
1: High up in the pantheon, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Sean's Bar in Athlone. It is supposedly the oldest pub in the world. Wow. Yeah, dates back to 900 CE. Wow. Yes, yeah, so let's raise a glass to that, Slansha. Slanter. <laughs>
0: Uh, let's talk about the Irish flag. Do you know Do you know the colours? Uh, green, orange slash sunlight. I don't know what colour we call it. And white, I think. Sunlight? I don't know. The sun. Oh, orange. Let's go back to orange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. The
1: Irish flag is green, white and orange stripes. It was designed in 1848, so within our time period, by a group of French women. French women. You weren't expecting that, were you? No. And uh, they supported the Irish cause against the English. It was intended to symbolize the Irish Catholics, which was the green, and the Irish Protestants, the orange, sharing a lasting truce,
0: which is the white.
1: Ah. Oh. Like oh, that's interesting. I didn't realise that. That's... I know. Every time you look at it now, you'll
0: see it. I am, yeah. yeah you see the two that's actually, of, people. of all the flags, you know, they have always assigning colors. I mean, this is the fertility of the land and stuff. Yeah. That's the best one. Yeah, blood of war. Well, yes. Or the <laughs>
1: murdered savage <laughs> right. Yeah. No, but it's it's a really interesting one. I'd never really considered it before, mm. but uh, there you go. Also, you'll notice it's very similar to the French flag, just different colors. Yeah, in the way that it's laid out. So there you go. French women.
0: Let's talk about some history. Okay. Irish history. Okay. I don't think we're going to come out well, speaking as a British person from this uh, (laughs) next section, but I think we should face into it. Hold on to that. (laughs) Okay, 6,000 BCE. Guess who's there? Early man. Early man is there, but it's
1: quite late, isn't it? Six thousand BCE. You'd think it'd go back further than that, but he had to travel. It's more or less the edge, isn't it, of the sort of migratory routes. So six thousand is uh, BCE is the is the earliest, um, and those were hunter-fishers, uh, not hunter-gatherers. Hunter-fishers, hunter they're fishers. described as, yeah, uh, and they're the people that, that first appear.
0: I like that idea that someone's gone. I'm going to go gathering that. Like, no, 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 no. no. That's not what we do. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't get us, dear. <laughs>
1: Uh, 3000 BCE, uh, we have Stone Age burial chambers being built, rectangular timber built houses um, where you inside, we are found uh, beads and pendants, bone pins, and these really elaborate engravings on the walls, which are beautiful to look at. Uh, really recommend having a look. In fact, I'll, I'll put a link up in the notes to this episode. They're also similar in style to those being built in northern France, indicating a possible origin these guys had migrated from.
0: So I suppose there's only really two routes. You could have come down from Norway, Scandinavia, Scotland, or up from southern Europe, because if you go west, there's not a lot of anything for quite a long way, is quite there? Quite a long way.
1: Yeah, exactly. So 1000 BCE, We enter sort of the metal age. Um, We've got bronze, copper and gold, and they're all being exported to Britain and the Nordics as well, from Ireland. So 300 BCE, the Iron Age brings about the arrival of the Celts, um, who I figured would have been those original people, but they're not. They're a group that originated from East Central Europe. Kingdoms and clans are then established as these guys sort of duke it out over a long period of time. In fact, it's not until the 10th century that Ireland has one king. 200 CE, the absence of the Romans in England, caused the Irish to feel confident enough to start raiding England. And so they come on into Britain and they start settling along the west coast along there. 400 CE, the first signs of Christianity in Ireland. And by 600 CE, there are the first reports of St. Patrick, who converts the Irish to Christianity. He's now their national saint. There is a relatively comprehensive monastic system put in place around that time with most men sort of dedicating their lives to the faith as either monks or as missionaries. And by 795, we're seeing the Vikings arrive. And uh, when they arrive, they are raiding the country. That's classic Vikings. They love a bit of a pillage, right? Uh, but only for 100 years. By 900 CE, they've kind of abandoned their raids and they're now just trading. By 1166 and for the next 500 years is the first period of English rule. Uh, The country is divided into counties and English laws are starting to be enacted. There are frequent rebellions throughout this period which are put down severely in 1652 a young lad called oliver cromwell Mm. yeah leads a campaign and he crushes all resistance and ireland is officially conquered all territory is given to english soldiers and creditors irish landowners are left with nothing
0: yeah i think oliver cromwell certainly when i was younger being taught history they really skipped over the bit where he was quite such a merciless brutalist In Ireland, and really focused on democracy and... Oliver Cromwell has an extraordinarily dark cloud over him in matters Irish. And when I learned about it later, I was Mm -hmm. rather disappointed that it hadn't been made clearer to me when I was younger. It's not talked about. It was perhaps referenced
1: briefly, but uh, yeah, like you say, the focus is more on the politics. Yeah, so 1791... Uh, we see an insurrectionist group known as the Society of United Irishmen uh, being created. And they are sort of driven by the success of the American and the French revolutions. And that starts to influence their own desire for reform in Ireland. And in 1798, a rebellion breaks out. Unfortunately, that is suppressed and the British government uses that as an opportunity to tighten its grip. And in fact, the Act of Union is signed at this point, which makes Ireland part of the United Kingdom. So that turns us into to our time period, the 1800s, and we start to see sort of the effects of the Industrial Revolution on Ireland. The value of Irish agriculture drops because of the innovations that were happening because of the Industrial Revolution, and the rural communities are really hit hard. In fact, the poverty that they were going through is made worse in 1840, when their staple food, the potato, uh, is caught in a blight and rots in the ground. Rent couldn't be paid, estates were transferred to new owners and roughly a million people died of starvation and fever. Those that did survive, millions fled abroad to escape that famine and poverty. And this became known as the Great Potato Famine.
0: So I've read a little bit about this and the things you kind of graph is it's it's an agricultural and environmental failure. But there was much more to it than that, wasn't there? It was very much an, an English policy that could have intervened to help people but actually still took the potatoes that were there to feed british i guess people so the the element of the famine i'd you would think of it as a natural tragedy but actually it's very much a, a human tragedy of choice by the english and the british and that is another one of those things where the islands frankly Terribly, terrible treatment at the hands of the British is again glossed over because you think, oh, just failed crops. But it wasn't just failed crops. It was the failure to provision any kind of alternative or even allow those potatoes that were there to be eaten by the people. They were still taken away and sold. The Irish remember, though. I've, I've met a sure. few and they remember. Yeah, quite right too.
1: Prior to the, the Great Potato Famine, 8 million people living in Ireland. Today, 5 million, as we've discussed. So still feeling that impact.
0: I mean, that's astonishing, isn't it? An event that just so massively changes everything, really. Yeah.
1: And of course, that's what we were talking about where we were saying um, about the Irish uh, population in America, 40 million people uh, that claim to have Irish ancestry in America. And that's because a lot of them emigrated there as part of the famine. Anyway, so 1911, Ireland's population is sort of half at this point what it was just 50 years before.
0: Imagine if half the people you knew weren't there anymore. <laughs> it
1: would be a significant loss, wouldn't it? It's crazy, yeah. Uh, Nineteen sixteen, which is the end of our time period, but that sees the Easter Rising. Uh, which is the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They seize government buildings in Dublin and their insurrection lasts just five days, but it kickstarts this vigorous campaign for Irish home rule. Negotiations then start to happen between Sinn Féin, the major Irish party at the time, and the UK government. And the Anglo-Irish treaty is signed, which succeeds five-sixths of Ireland from the UK. In 1949, legislation enables Irish home rule um, finally being passed, abolishes the monarchy from Ireland and makes the country a republic with a presidency, which is kind of where we are today. But that leads into a whole troubled part of the mid to late 20th century. And even to today with, you know, a lot of conversations still ongoing
0: about UK's role in Northern Ireland. And there's kind of another consistent thread, isn't there, in Irish life, which is you said at the start, very early on, there was this extensive monastic tradition and religious i guess religious presence in all of society and that has just still is still the case today isn't it there's that, always been that continuous church element in in ireland as well no no you're absolutely right and that
1: is a huge part you know and, and i have glossed over the whole protestant versus catholic thing only because we're talking about mountains today mm-hmm. and not going through the, the whole history of, of, of ireland mm-hmm. But let's talk about the age of imperialism, uh, which is the time period, 1800 to, to 1916. Well, actually, it's not strictly true. Um, I think the does later got that slightly wrong. Yeah, imperialism goes back much further than 1800, but that's kind of like the new period of imperialism. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So, the 1800s uh, is a period of major change across. Europe, but also the world. And there are a number of factors that sort of influence that change, like the industrial revolution is happening around that time and nationalism, but perhaps even more so than that is imperialism. And by imperialism, we mean the domination of one country by people over another group of people. And so the age of imperialism starts around the 1500s. We talk about that often in the in our episodes with the Portuguese landing here and <laughs> yeah. the English landing there and, you know, saying hello to the locals. That's kind of where imperialism begins. And that's often due to a lot of those European major nations wanting to start trade routes with the Far East, undergoing explorations in the New World, creating settlements in North South America, Southeast Asia, Africa, China, basically expanding around the
0: globe. I mean, in a sense, it's... It's the start of globalisation isn't it it's however willingly or otherwise for the people on the other end of it well I mean it's it's interesting because it kind of starts out essentially
1: around trade but they're limited in the 1500s by how much they can carry you know they're in their little wooden ships how many men they can take because there's only so much resources they can take
0: and once you've got a hold full of nutmeg you're done right and you're kind of done right you're <laughs> like yeah what, what more can can you do so in
1: that period it was more about sort of creating working relationships with local rulers but their influence is ultimately kind of limited by how many people they can take, how much they can store in their hold and and so on. But by the 1800s things start to shift and we enter sort of an, an age of new imperialism where Europeans are beginning to sort of more aggressively establish bigger, vaster empires. And they're able to do that through the shift in pace due to technology, science, industry, allowing for sort of things like steel production. So you're able to create bigger, more robust ships and transportation, the development of the railroad, internal combustion engine, electrical power. All of these things means that the ability to land and expand gives the Europeans uh, this intense period of superiority over what they saw as their backward global neighbours. So this wasn't just turning up and, hey, would you like to trade this for that? It's, we're just going to take this just through their, their might and strength. By 1914, in fact, Great Britain now controls the largest number of colonies in the world. The saying was, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And when you think about it that actually does describe the vastness of their global reach was that
0: wherever you were the sun never set on britain well it was insane wasn't it the amount of the world that was under the influence of this tiny island really relatively if you look at it on a map you go well that's mad that that little place had this reach but i guess that's technology in action isn't it it is but well
1: obviously it wasn't just the united kingdom Uh, it was also spain they colonized much of central and south america france had uh, louisiana and french guinea Uh, holland built an entire empire in the Indies. So, you know, everyone was kind of having a go. So that's the time period. That's that's the period that we're looking at. There's a lot happening in 1800 to 1916. It is a solid century
0: and quite a changeful one as well.
2: Congratulations, your country has been selected as the newest member of the British Empire. What is that, you might ask? Put simply, it's a club with benefits like trade, Say goodbye to old-fashioned methods of money and return for goods and services. Forget the tedious task of invoicing and chasing down payment, because there won't be any payment. They're Britain's goods now. Bid farewell to the hassle of worshipping all those hilarious gods of your hokey religions. Instead, just direct your awe and reverence to one easy-to-manage recipient, your new queen. Feel your breasts swell with pride as this magnificent woman heads up your pathetically queenless country. Isn't that better? Obviously, the queen will not be visiting your country, but you can see her for yourself at any time by looking at the stamps we will be happy to sell you at a modest price. But that's not all. As a British territory, you will also receive a network of railways, making transport across your country an absolute breeze. Eligibility to travel by this new and exciting network applies to all of your coal, iron, minerals, and resources on their journey out of the country. Of course, you won't be traveling on the train. You'll be busy underground in the mines, enjoying full employment and long hours, all included in your country's membership to the British Empire. And what will it cost, you ask? Quite simply, everything. So, welcome. To the British Empire. Enjoy our stay.
1: Let's talk about mountains. What is a
0: mountain? A very big hill that's outgrown its hill status. <laughs> <laughs> outgrown it? <Yeah>. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> It's
1: an adult hill, <laughs> is
2: what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. It's
1: gone beyond hill puberty. Exactly. Okay. There is no consensus, uh, is the answer, uh, on the definition of a mountain. It means different things to different people. Uh, across the globe, everyone has a different definition of what uh, a mountain is. And there's a lot of things to consider. I just thought, you measure it, and if it's above a certain height, it's a mountain. And that's kind of true, but it's also not true, because the, you, you can look at elevation. Prominence. So, prominence is imagine a lump in the landscape. Yes. All right. On that lump is two lumps. Yes. One is higher than the other, right? One is more prominent than the other one, right? Depending on how close those little lumps are on the big lump are, is it considered still part of the overall lump or are Ah, they two separate
3: prominences
1: or is it like one big thing? So you measure from the the highest prominence to the second highest prominence and depending on the distance between those, you can blah, 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 blah. Two mountains or one. Indeed. Gotcha. So that's kind of what prominence means. And so you measure elevation versus your prominence. Uh, You've then got isolation. Is it on its own in the middle of nowhere? Like if so, what are you measuring
0: it against? I guess that's a good point because you could have very flat land that's very high above sea level and nobody would say that's a mountain would they They'd <laughs> right. just say that's some flat land it's that's just flat. Above, you're just above really high sea up. level
1: <laughs> exactly yeah uh location and so on and so on so there's a lot of factors that go into establishing whether a lump of land is a mountain or not so anyway Point is, there's a lot of factors to consider. But in general, there are just two measures which are considered. And that is the full height at the peak. But then you've also got the height of the prominence as well, right? The height of the summit relative to other nearby summits. So those are the two things that kind of come into effect. In fact, there are so many different various categories and lists that are unique to each country that they could kind of fit into different combinations. So within Ireland, there is a Firth, uh, which is a height of over 3,000 feet. There is a real Monroe, which is a Firth, but with a prominence of over 150 metres. So it's over 3,000 feet, but it's higher than its nearest... <laughs> peak by 150 met- Then there's the P600, which are known as the Majors. So, it, within the British Isles, it's a peak of any height with prominence over 600 metres. Then there's the Marilyn, a British Isles peak of any height with a prominence of over 150 metres. Then you've got a Hewitt, which is a peak of over 2,000 feet. Then there's the P600, which are known as the Majors. So, it, within the British Isles, it's a peak of any height with prominence over 600 metres. Then there's the Marilyn. British Isles peak at any height with a prominence of over 150 metres. Then you've got Hewitt, which is a peak of over 2,000 feet. Then there's the Marrowing, 610 metres, with a prominence of over 30 metres. Then you've got the Vandeleur Lynam, uh, with a peak of over 600 metres, with a prominence of over 15 metres. And then you've got the Arderin, and then you've got the mountain views, and the... Wait, were you just asleep right now? No. Okay. All right, fine. Well, I guess I'll just carry on. As a rule, though, and as the basis for the official list of 100 highest Irish mountains, uh, (laughs) the minimum peak for an Irish mountain is 500 meters. Right. Measure it from the ground to the peak, 500 meters or higher, it's a mountain. Okay? 1,640 feet. So, given the name of that list, you might be led to believe that there are indeed. mountains in Ireland. They are relatively low-lying, and they are found mainly around the coastal areas. And those are made of granite. And in the south, they're sandstones, which is slightly less strong.
0: I feel like they'd be being worn down quickly.
1: Yeah, two huge supercontinents about 450 million years ago slammed together, and they created Ireland. And at one point, around this time, when Ireland was at the time then below the equator, the mountains were much larger than they were today, right? Because they erode over time due to weather and other natural um, things like uh, glaciers and such. But it's said that they were so tall, they were even taller than Mount Everest today, which is the largest mountain on Earth. Um, perhaps more than 8,000 meters high. Wow, these mountains in Ireland. Uh, but they've just eroded and scoured away down over the to years. a stub. Yeah, particularly the ones in the south, which are sandstone, right? It's much easier for them to just
0: erode. The top three mountains in Ireland, I hear you ask me. What are they, Ryan? What are those top three mountains in Ireland, uh, Ryan, that um... I've heard so much about? (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: Okay, so number one is Carunter Hill. Now, again, I'm not pronouncing this right. Uh, And it has a height of 1,038.6 metres. That's 3,407 feet. So quite high but broadly put this in human terms
0: right this is something that you and i could walk up in a day and back or we would need to get our crampons on and start hacking up the snowy surface you could walk up it yeah i mean there are different routes up many mountains right
1: so uh, most mountains will have several different routes uh, of different levels of severity uh you could you can walk up current hill uh, it would probably take us about eight
0: hours to get up there and back again I wouldn't need oxygen or a tent though i could just it's take a unlikely and it and yeah be all right.
1: you're, you're not going to need ice ice axes okay on- current Hill. Another you know, depending on the weather <laughs> depending on the weather. I am assured though that it is still a tough journey. And that's more to do with sort of the weather, I think, more than anything else. It's right by the coast and so very
0: windy, very rainy, and very cold. I would suggest if you can endure the Ryanair flight to get near to the mountain, you can endure <laughs> the walk up the mountain. <laughs> very true. Then number two is knockna Piasta. Again really apologises about the language not, if i might yesterday. interject briefly on the language mm. irish in particular has a very loose relationship between the spelling and one's natural instinct for speaking out loud so i i, I feel you on this because having known many people with irish names yep. and the spelling and the speaking of those being wildly different to what i would expect from my cultural background yeah uh, i think you got no hope so <laughs> no i don't have any hope
1: and so I, that's why i'm just apologizing and that's yeah. it really that's all that can be done so yeah not Piazza, 988 metres. And then you've got number three, Brandon, Mount Brandon at 952 metres. Mount Brandon. Brandon, yeah. So Carinter Hill means 2,000 sickle. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Yeah, I looked it up and why a sickle? Um, I guess the ridges are shaped, like, like kind of like got that serrated edge. Knockna means hill of the serpent. Is it a long wiggly hill? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. It looks it looks a bit like it. And then you've got Brandon, which just means Brendan's Brand, Hill. Brendan, <laughs> That's
0: what it means. <laughs> Brendan's like, this yeah. is
1: my hill. And like, well, I guess you got right. here first. You, yeah. And why he called it a hill and not a mountain, obviously he wasn't doing his maths. Other notable mountain names in Ireland, though, Toothal Sickle, Hill of the Serpent. You can see how like people look at these things and oh, see go, images see and shape like them right? You could ex- exactly. You, you see images in it and you're like, that's what we should call it. Because then I can tell other people, oh, I was near the mountain that looked like a bundle of snakes. And people are like, oh, the bundle of snake mountain. Yeah, it does look like that. Here's some other names. Hollow of the Wood. Uh, top of the Fang. Oh, Top of the
0: Fang, I like. Hollow of the Wood didn't sound like a mountain name at all. No, it sounds like a wood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, a clearing in a wood. <laughs> yeah. Not even a wood. <laughs> uh, Long-haired Mountain. Oh, that's good.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Fork of the Horse.
0: I now have an image of a a horse at a dinner table. (laughs) It's just confusing to me.
1: Yeah, I don't know why, but I imagine
0: it's sort of like with its legs
1: all splayed out. (laughs) I don't know why. Sunny Spot. Oh, nice. Uh, Rump of the Drum.
0: Rump of the Drum, nice. Yeah, Pass of the Bullocks. Crikey. (laughs) (laughs) Mountain of the women. I I would like to know more about that one, but carry on. (laughs) What about boggy area long grass? That feels a little on the nose for me. It's like, come on, guys. Uh, What happened to Serpent's Tooth Mountain, you idiots?
1: (laughs) Uh, What about mountain of ants? (laughs) (laughs) What is this, a mountain for ants?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the two breasts. Well... I can't, I I find it impossible to believe that is the only mountain range where two hills have been called that, but uh, yeah, carry on. Okay, well, I,
1: I mean, I guess that just leaves, <laughs> that just leaves resemblance of Maeve's Volva. Maeve, <laughs> it's... your fame endures. What a lass. <laughs>
0: 678
1: metres high. The resemblance of Mave's Vulva
0: so still stands. This tells us a lot about Mave, doesn't it? Because at least two people went, does that look
3: like <laughs> it does, <laughs> look does look like Mave?
0: Like <laughs> so
3: do Maeve. Do you know what I'm
1: seeing? <laughs> I do know what you're seeing. <laughs> so there you go. The resemblance of Maves Vulva and Mountain of Ants. <laughs> 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 we should go climb Maves Vulva. I don't know, man. I'm not sure I can find it. <laughs> Side note, one of the oldest remaining traditions in Ireland is called Puck Fair. Bunch of people run up a mountain and they go catch a wild goat. Wow. That sounds extraordinarily challenging. <laughs> yeah, right. But they do it and they catch it, and this is in the Kerry Mountains, by the way. So they run up there, they catch a goat, they put it in a cage, they bring it down to the town, and then they make it king for three days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and then they release it back up into the mountain. I'd like a goat king. Imagine being that goat. Imagine be I'd be a I would live in a house in a nation that had a goat king. A goat king for three days. Wow. Well, if he passes enough good quality legislation in those three days, it could last, couldn't it? What a great festival, Puck Fair. I mean, I, I feel bad for the goat, but also it's only three days, and it gets to be king for three days. So that goat goes back to his goat mates and like, you are not going to believe what <laughs> yeah. happened to me. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, whatever. Can you imagine being like an, a- being like an alien abduction or, story, yeah. isn't it, in the goat world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Who's your four-legged friend? The goat.
1: Well, yeah, obviously. Well, you know the Irish have that puck fair thing? You know, where they make a goat the king? Yeah. Well, I was thinking we should have our own. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Problem is, he says he doesn't want to be a king. He wants to be a mayor. He said that? Yeah. Yeah, listen. Colin, would you rather be a king or a mayor? (laughs) See? Ryan, that's just the sound they make. Well, that's what I thought at first. But check this out. Hey, Colin... Um, where should we go next? Get some food or go for
0: a drink? (coughs) See? He wants to go to a bar. Well, that's good enough for me. Excellent idea, Mr Mayor. Let's go for a drink.
1: Okay, well, while you're enjoying your Guinness, how about I tell you about some Irish mountain climbers? Yeah, please do. Because I guess if there are mountains, someone's going to climb them. Because they're there. Exactly. So there are mountains in 1800 to 1916, but is anyone climbing them? What do you think?
0: I mean, given that this is the age of imperialism, people were travelling and taking over things and planting flags in all directions, in my opinion, so I suspect it was a golden age of mountain climbing. Well, that, it's funny you should use that phrase. Uh, yes, there are people climbing mountains. Are they climbing them in
1: Ireland is the question. Oh, I mean, as a warm-up, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, basically, this time period isn't ice-axe-wielding, crampon-laden, Gore-Tex-bedecked <laughs> mountaineers clambering over hillsides like, you know, like we're perhaps used
0: to today. Kind of big woolly sweater. <laughs> a tweed. A lot of tweed. Heavy and leather shoes. <laughs> That's exactly right. And uh, still wearing a tie. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no, for sure. Come on,
1: decorum. In fact, I- at home in Ireland, uh, the pursuit of mountain climbing, uh, mountain running, uh, running up and down mountains, uh, is much more an act of daring do. Uh, it's independently wealthy gentlemen getting together, looking to sort of outdo one another. They're not really taking this very seriously in terms of tackling summits like... Like, come on, let's get up there and get to the top, lads. It's more like, I reckon I could just get there faster <sighs> I than I you I'll
0: be here on the mountain.
1: I'll see you tomorrow, and let's, I'll find out.
0: nave two more pints. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Outside of Ireland, though, the Irish are having a much more tangible contribution to mountain exploration, especially in the Alps, which is kind of where all the mountains kind of are. That is a hotbed of mountains. In fact, from the 1850s uh, to the early 20th century, the Irish were centrally placed in establishing what is now recognised as the Golden Age of Alpine mountaineering. I knew it. Now... uh, Sadly, much of that Irish contribution has been ignored or obscured, to put it kindly. Uh, by the historical accounts, who which were written by Gesu, is it us? Yeah. So the Irish are kind of edged to the to the very far margins of that, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that was the case, as we're about to discover. Uh, recent explorations into the history of Irish mountain climbing, um, such as Frank Nugent's excellent book *In Search of Peaks, Passes, and Glaciers: Irish Alpine Pioneers*, has revealed that there was a significant Irish contribution at this time. From for example, did you know that the first ever ascents of the huge Alpine mountains, the Eiger, the Weishorn, the Matterhorn, they were all completed first by Irish climbers? No way. Climbers like John Tyndall, famous scientist from Carlo in Ireland, who spent his summers in Switzerland studying glaciers and mountains. He was an expert mountaineer and he led one of the first teams to reach the top of the Weisshorn in 1861 and the Matterhorn in 1868. Then you're talking about John Ball, MP. He was a politician from Dublin who was the first to climb Montpelmo and went on to become the first president of the Alpine Club. So quite well respected. He was also the author of a series of guidebooks, uh, which led to sort of the popularisation of the sport. So he wrote them in a way which were easily accessible by every level of society, Ah. from the common people to the... The Richie Rich, the elite, the elite indeed. And then you've got Anthony Adams Riley from Westmeath in Ireland, who produced the first reliable map of Mont Blanc. Then you've got Valentine Ryan from Offaly, who is often considered the finest Alpine climber of the early 20th century. Um, so these are just uh, like just a few of these Irish climbers that are, that haven't been recognised in 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 more recent history as to their achievements. In fact, there are too many of these Irish climbers to talk about just in this podcast. But what I am going to do is just focus on two. And these are, for me, the more notable of these Irish mountaineers. So I'm just going to tell you about those guys. Do it. All right. Okay. The first on my list is a chap called Charles Barrington.
0: If you'd have said, name an Irish mountain climber. (laughs) Yeah. I would never have got to Charles Barrington. No, you it's wouldn't sound very Irish at all, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't, no.
1: So, in the heart of the Swiss Bernice Alps is this tiny, picturesque village. And uh, it lies in the shadow of a number of these looming mountains around it. Peaks like the Finstararhorn. <laughs> which is 4,274 metres high 14,000 feet tall The Wetterhorn uh, Which is 3,692 metres high uh, 12,000 feet You've got the Schreckhorn 4,078 metres 13,379 feet high The Grosser Fäischerhorn uh, 4,049 metres 13,284 feet And the Eiger. Perhaps it's most more famous one, exactly, the classic. 3,967 metres high, 13,015 feet
0: tall. I have in my mind an Irish mountain climber going, well, I've done all the mountains in Ireland, I'm going to go to the Alps, and just arriving and going... Oh,
1: he's a bit. It's really different. <laughs> <laughs> so the Eiger is uh, is the most notable of those mountains. It's probably the one that stood out to you, um, unless you knew of the Shrek Horn or the Gorosafalshar Horn. No, those those were new to me. I'll be honest. Right. So the Eiger is most notable uh, because it has this one one thousand eight hundred meter. Bear in mind that's... Almost twice as high as Caruntu Hill, the largest mountain on Ireland, uh, north face of rock and ice, and it's named the Eiger Nordwand, which is the biggest north face in the Alps. What do we mean by the north face? Do you know?
0: Well, I have heard the expression of "the north face of the Eiger." Mm. I'd never heard of just the Eiger. It was always the north face of the Eiger. Right. I didn't. I didn't. I thought that was just a particular bit that was a hard climb. But I didn't the know there was a north, the north facing was a general thing at all.
1: Yeah, the north face is an expression. I, that's right. Because I heard of that and i thought just the north face was the side of the mountain that faced north right no the north face is the name for the coldest most unforgiving side of a mountain oh really yes oh interesting indeed so even the name eiger gives away an impression of how dangerous this mountain is and particularly the north face there are three mountains on the same ridge as the eiger there is the jungfrau the, the monk and the eiger jungfrau means virgin or maiden Monk means monk, like a priest. And then there's the Eiger, which means ogre. (laughs) (laughs) Which sort of gives you an indication as to when they were naming these things why they might name that one the Ogre. So even by 1857, the Eiger had remained unclimbed. Many people had tried to climb it. In fact, Europe's most famous mountaineer, a Viennese gentleman called Sigismund Porges, he had attempted to climb the Eiger that year, 1857, but had failed, right? He'd managed to get about two thirds of the way up it before he turned around and came back, um, just like everyone else before him. So it was no great shame in it. It was just an impossible mountain to climb. But one year later, in August 1858, a 24-year-old Irish merchant called Charles Barrington arrives in Grindelwald looking for adventure. Now let's bear in mind that this twenty-four-year-old Irish merchant had never done any training. He had the most basic of equipment, and uh, he'd never climbed a mountain before. And here he is, just turning up in in Grindelwald, this tiny little picturesque village. So he was looking for adventure, as twenty-four-year-olds do. So he sort of spent a few days clambering around these glaciers, sleeping in caves. And uh, his diary talks about sleeping in a uh, a little hut on one of the glaciers with a goat herd and his goats, uh, where he says that. Um, he was bitten to death with fleas. <laughs> the next night he had to sleep with like a, a beef steak on his face just to bring down the swelling. But that was kind of it. That was the, the most he'd done. So Charles arrives back in Grindelwald, 72 hours after leaving for walking around these glaciers, and he's feeling restless. Unfulfilled. Like, here's his own words from a letter that he wrote to his brother recounting what happened next. Walked back to Grindelwald. Here I met some alpine men whose footsteps I had tracked down the glacier. Talking about climbing, I said to them, I did not think much of the work I had done, and was answered, try the Eiger or the Matterhorn. All right, I said. <laughs> In the evening. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> In the evening of the next day I made a bargain with two guides for the Eiger. Side note this is the super experienced Christian Alma and Peter Boren known locally in Grindelwald as Peter Lee, the wolf of the glaciers. Mm-hmm. These guys were knowledgeable about the area. He says I walked up to the hotel stopped to play cards for an hour on the way then threw myself on a sofa
0: to sleep. That was his prep
1: I <laughs> climbed the Eiger. <laughs> an hour of cards I've got to say I I love love this guy (laughs) I
0: am loving this guy it's everything I would aspire to be
1: (laughs) yeah Gentle reminder, he'd never climbed a mountain before, let alone the most sinister, the most deadly of mountains, the unclimbed, the unclimbable 13,026 feet of Mount Iger.
0: So he was too inexperienced to know it was
1: unclimbable Indeed. and that was in his favour. He definitely knew it was <laughs> unclimbable because everyone was telling him. Uh, but he, he didn't think twice, right? This is him again. We started at 3.30am for the Iger. We took a flag from the hotel and we, when we came to a point where one descends into a small hollow, I looked well with my glass telescope over the face of the us, and made up my mind to try the rocks in front, instead of going up the other side, which had been tried twice before unsuccessfully. Alma and Boren, his guides, said it was no use and declined to come the way I wished. All right, I said, you may stay, I will try. (laughs) (laughs) So off I went for about 300 or 400 yards over some smooth rocks to the part which was almost perpendicular. I then shouted and waved the flag for them to come on, and after five minutes they followed and came up to me. They said it was impossible. I said, I will try. So with the rope coiled over my shoulders, I scrambled up, sticking like a cat to the rocks, which cut my fingers, and at last got up, say, 50 to 60 feet. I then lowered the rope and the guides followed with its assistance. So. This inexperienced Irishman is now leading the expert guides up the Eiger himself, right? Showing them the way. This is him again. We then had to mark our way with chalk and small bits of stone, fearing that we might not be able to find it on our return. Because <laughs> it's all very well getting to the top, but then you got to get back, right? We went very close to the edge, looking down on Grindelwald, sometimes throwing over large stones just to hear them crash down beneath the clouds. Well, you got to have fun when you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. We got to the top. The two guides gave me the place of first man up, Stayed about ten minutes, fearing the weather, and came down in four hours, avoiding the very steep place and saving ourselves by a few seconds from an avalanche. So they made it. The ogre had been conquered.
0: I like the avalanche was just a side, like, oh yeah, and also, (laughs) just missed an avalanche. But but the most important thing, beef for tea. <laughs> right, beef for tea, exactly. So he was met at the bottom by about 30 people from
1: Gunderval. They all ran out to see them. And uh, he says that they, they went up to the hotel. They doubted we had been on the top until the telescope disclosed the flag there. <laughs> no one believed they'd made it. The hotel proprietor immediately uh, let off a large gun and I seemed for the evening to be a lion.
0: Nice. Was okay, drag. there were so many bits of that story that I enjoyed. Number one, he didn't even bring his own flag. He's gone to the hotel and said, uh, you guys got a flag I could borrow? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite amazing, that isn't is it? That is not thats almost, I love the cinematic moment where like, no, come on, and then they stretch out the telescope and they look up and there it is, flapping in little, the breeze at the top flag. of
1: the mountain. You'd think that the word of the... Of um, well, the, the two other guys,
0: yeah. You'd would think. have been
1: sufficient, but even they, like, I mean, it just goes to show how impossible they felt that climbing the Eiger was. And there he is, just done it in a day whatever. Anyway. (laughs) So in the glow of this success, Charles Barrington then has to consider what to do next. Well, in his letter, he says, not having enough money with me to try the Matterhorn, which he wanted to do next, I went home. Thus ended my first and only
0: visit to Switzerland.
1: (laughs) That's, That's it. And he did. He went home. He never climbed
0: again. Uh, he just As k- careers go. That's pretty unbeatable, isn't it? <laughs> right. Just sign off uh, on that first one up the Iger, North Face. Done that. Um, Drop do. <laughs> uh,
1: Yeah. So what? He, what did he do? Well, he just lived quietly in Fassaro, in Ireland. Um, he made the local headlines only once more in 1870 when he trained a racehorse to climb a mountain <laughs> and won the the Irish Grand National with it. Oh, nice. Yeah. He, and also in 1870, he donated a gold. Watch for a race up and down the Sugarloaf Mountain in, in Ireland, which was a competition uh, won by a guy called Tom Hill in the first ever race. Um, but it was revived in 2006 by Charles's great great grandson as far as I'm aware, still going. Barrington died on April 20th, 1901 and was buried simply as a merchant. His legacy of, of being the first to, to conquer the Eiger kind of not lost, but just not really spoken about. That is a fantastic story. Right. So to this day, Barrington is 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 still spoken of with huge respect in Grindelwald. And in fact, on the 150th anniversary of Charles's victory over the Ogre, a joint celebration was planned between the Swiss village and Charles's family. The special event was marked by the erection of two memorials and a recreation of the original ascent featuring two climbers from the mountaineering council of Ireland. Michael Crawley and his climbing partner, Niamh Burke, they tackled the climb together, saying at the time that it is through people like Charles that my generation has these opportunities to explore and achieve what may seem impossible. How inspirational is that? So I got to speak to Michael Crawley and I started to ask him just a bit about his background as a mountaineer. And then this is... Is what you had to say no way this is awesome
3: i suppose i'd have to go back to when i was a teenager and used to stare out the window just dreaming of going on adventures and you know i've, I've been lucky in in my life to be able to go off to different places and i've met the most amazing people and where they've brought me but i suppose consciously my first mountain was believe not in southwest of ireland a small place called uh, car Savine. And it's a mountain's name is called Knuch Naduber. And as I stood at the top of this mountain, I just went, wow, this is just magical, you know, to be able to go up a mountain and, and in some ways to have a profession, which is, I find astonishing that somebody wants to pay you to climb up a mountain with them, but they do. And uh, thankfully I've been able to try, turn that into a, a livelihood for myself. For me, it's like any mountain. I've never, I've never climbed mountains to, conquer a mountain for me it's the whole experience it's about meeting the people seeing the cultures understanding what foods they have and how they look at the mountain and you know to be very respectful of it and it's you know it's a, it's a wonderful experience for me you know, that the happiest moments i think in my life are being stuck in the side of a mountain and all you hear is wind or a robin will arrive up beside you and at such a height and you're just going how is this possible and, you know it's You're at one, for me, I know it sounds like a cliche at one with nature, but you really are. You have no noise, no traffic, no Facebook, no social media at you. It's just you and the mountain. I find that very uh, reassuring. And I'm probably giving this lovely image that it's always easy, but it's not. (laughs) There is the other elements. Probably my favorite, and it's one that I would I'll probably say to you now, but I'll also say to listeners, don't try this. But I climbed a volcano while it was erupting with five other people, and that was probably the most stupid thing you could do in your life. But at the same time, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen, you know, to see. And I was good, you know, maybe half a kilometer, 500 meters away from the actual lava rolling down the mountain. But to feel the earth shaking underneath you, to see the lava at nighttime rolling down the mountain, now I was with five other Guatemalans who hadn't a clue what they were doing and all they had was tequila and marijuana to keep them going. So that was that was the other dangerous part of the journey.
0: <laughs> Spirit of Barrington lives. <laughs> Amazing, right? That was remarkable. He's he's uh, truly inspirational. He's
1: I I just love talking with with Michael and um I'm really grateful that he's he gave us his time to sort of tell us about this. Uh, I found him just also what a voice. Oh
0: yeah, it was great oh, to uh, sit there and listen, listen to that. For that lovely yeah. warm caramel voice. <laughs> yeah. Um I have to say that this sort of triggers something in me, which is that there is something about the pursuit of mountain climbing, because because of its pointlessness. And I don't mean that as a negative. What I mean is there is no resource to be plundered. There is no mm-hmm. profit to be had. There is, It is simply a thing to do. Uh, there's something kind of pure about that desire to just get to the top of something you know you're not going to come away with a nugget of gold you're not going to you, you there's nothing in it for you
1: really yeah there's, there is a sense that we all share i think which is purpose and like what are we here for like what what is it about and i think that it fulfills it tickles sort of that box of of purpose of like you know achievement of having set out to face a challenge and overcome it
0: yeah and i, I have a, and it's a very minor version of it but whenever I go anywhere Mm -hmm. I like to get into the highest part of whatever it is if it's the tallest building in the town or if there's a hill you know Arthur's Seat in Edinburgh whatever Mm -hmm. it is whenever I go anywhere I like to get to the highest bit of it Yeah, and if there's ever any water I want to touch the water Oh, and those are just like two things that make me feel like I've engaged with the extremes if you like of the location that's wonderful
1: well look I asked him about the climb and how he got involved and this is what Michael had to say
3: I, I was basically called up by a friend, and I'll be, I'll be honest, I, I was very ignorant to what Charles achieved. And I was, my friend who was part of the Mountaineering Ireland at the time, Mountaineering Council of Ireland, it was called then, knew I was heading over to Switzerland to climb the Matterhorn and said, would you mind climbing the Eiger as well, Michael, while you're over there? And he explained the, the kind of the background to it. And I said, of course. And so that's the moment when I started reading up on Charles and quite an amazing achievement in, in that era. And, but I suppose Charles was the kind of a person who, he liked the challenge. And if somebody told him you couldn't do it, he'd find a way of doing it. So he was a very determined individual. The, the family of the two guides, they weren't happy. And they actually accosted uh, Charles Barrington before they began the climb, saying, what are you doing? Why are you taking our sons up here or my husband up here? They're going to die. But he, again, it shows you how determined he was to get up to the top. And I'm sure the guides as well, they really wanted to be able to say we were the first ones to to climb the Eiger. You know, if you can imagine in 1858, so equipment-wise, it wasn't, Mind bodily, you know, fantastic. It was, you know, you wearing a, a tweed jacket, tweed tweed trousers. You'd have uh, boots with kind of nails, kind of hammered into the bottom of them to to give you grip, and and then a bit of rope and a rope that wasn't, you know, flexible at all. It wasn't elasticated. So if you fell on that, you were you were virtually breaking your back. You know, it was quite a quite a harrowing uh, ordeal in some ways, and then part of all that was it's, it was 150 years to commemorate Charles's achievement but it wasn't really until I met his his, uh, his descendants really and I realized that wow he was an absolutely mad character altogether but um he probably had to be in terms of what he what he achieved.
1: so then I asked him like I mean there he he was mentioning about some of the dangers of it and I, I asked him whether he was aware of the dangers for his own climb and this is what he had to say.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're always aware. But at the same time, you, you're you driven by a young male testosterone thinking, yeah, I can do this. No problem at all. But, you know, you, you're you acutely aware. And I've been trained, you know, by the best. That classic saying, you know, is the, if you fail to prepare, you know, prepare to fail. So we, we had all our work done and everything. But, you know, things crop up and you just have to deal with them. And we did deal with them. I don't really get phased. I... I Having Neve there, believe it or not, that was my focus, was making sure she stayed alive. You know, was, there was moments there she was so cold, so tired, because it was, a, it was a long day that she felt, okay, we could stay at the top of the mountain. But I knew if we stayed at the top, that was it. We were, you know, we would be goners. So, like, I would look upon what I was doing as, you know, okay, it's, it's seen as a dangerous activity, et cetera. But As we climbed the Eiger there, I saw a gentleman ski down the side of it, but he also had a, a, how do you say, a parasol, a kite with him. So he was uh, ski uh, kiting down it and to see him, and he'd launch off the Eiger and use the wind and he would drag himself back in and he'd land on the mountain again. So that put it into perspective in terms of what I was doing, you know, in terms of danger.
0: So that's about the danger. Um, so I, think, I think we need to take a moment at this point, Ryan, to ponder the, the perils of podcasting, our chosen hobby. Yeah. Um, as we hear, he's he risked his life. Right. He could die at any moment. Yeah. And I feel that has a lot of parallels with the art of podcasting. It is. At any time, I could say something silly. Yeah. And you'd have to edit that out later. Yeah. Like this bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, I thought you meant because we record on the 10th floor of a building. I thought that was the, the height's equivalent. <laughs> yes. You have to get a lift. It's a high altitude podcasting. <laughs> it's a, real, a real adrenaline rush. <laughs> <laughs> so then anyway, so I asked Michael about the actual ascent. And this is what he had to say.
3: When we started was really early in the morning. You know, we got up and I suppose to set the tone as myself and Neve, my climbing partner, we were there packing up our tent and brushing our teeth. All of a sudden, I could hear this rumbling coming from the mountain. And literally a foot away from Neve's head, a rock came flying past and missed her. And I said to Neve, "Okay, let's get going." So we quickly set set upon going, and uh, and it was a it was a long long day. It was a, an amazing experience, but you know things happened along the way that you didn't plan for. All the best plans in the world, you know, you can you can plan, you can look at books, you can you know map out your route, and which we did. But unfortunately for Neve, you know, this was kind of really her one of her first experiences in something this extreme that we had been uh, over on the Matterhorn. But it was quite a, a daunting mountain, and virtually we met nobody on this the Eiger, which was quite amazing. It should only take around about maybe. If you were fast moving, etc., maybe between thirteen to fifteen hours took us about uh, twenty-two hours. So, as we were going up the mountain, the, the, the Barrington family was quite a, one of my favourite moments, and it was um, I couldn't resist not going out onto the north face. So as we're going up, these um, and the west flank basically goes up along, and you have the north face to your kind of your left hand side. So as I creeped on the outside of it, just to say I've done a tiny bit on the North Face, I I had been informed by my friend who's part of the mountaineer in Ireland, Mick, you know, that you're going to get a phone call. It could be CNN. You know, you're going to have to answer this call. So the phone rings and I go, shit, I have to answer this. So I, I met myself safe. I locked into the snow and I gingerly took my phone out to answer what I thought would be CNN. But it was actually the Barrington family. They were down below looking through a telescope. And they were saying, Mick, we can see you. Well, oh, this is amazing. We can see you. And I had to say, that's great, Ron. Fantastic. Um, I'm just hanging on the side of the, the, the mountain here. Can I call you back in a little bit? And he says, yeah, I can see you. You're there in the red jacket. And I go, Ron, I'm wearing a blue jacket. It was somebody else you're focused on. So <laughs> I hung up. Put my phone away and continued <laughs> up this little section of the north face. <laughs> and then we got to the top. Yes, thank you, Rod. <laughs> um,
1: so then I asked about the moment that they reached the top, him and Neve.
3: Yeah, well, we had a flag, an Irish flag. But in those days, I suppose I will say is camera technology wasn't great on mobile phones. We did take a picture, but I don't think it came out too well. But it's, it is proof that we're there. You no, know, We took out the Irish flag. And I suppose for me, it was a moment where we said, you know, to Charles. And then I was acutely aware of time-wise as well, you know, that we had to get going. So there was a, a tiny little bit of celebration. It was a pleasure for me to to climb the Eiger, not because of just climbing the mountain, but to represent Ron's family and what it meant to them. You know, they were very emotional when, when I came down and... So appreciative of what I did in memory of their, their, how would you say, Charles, their ancestor, and uh, so it was a privilege. So you'll you heard there that uh, Michael and Eve
1: raised the Irish flag. Um, on top of the Igo once they reached the top. So I thought I'd use that as an opportunity to ask Michael if he felt that Charles's plucky attitude was especially Irish in any way. You know, did he did he think that that the attitude that he had of go get it, I'm just going to go up there, was was that a, 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 an especially Irish trait? And and this is this was his response.
3: To be honest, you know, like uh, you know, we we can say different things about countries and what nationality, etc. But for me. You know, there's just so many amazing human beings out there. And for me, I don't look at them. Oh, where are you from? You know, what's your country? You know, for me, it's you see it in their eyes, why they do the mountain. For me, mountains have no idea where you're from. They're just, uh, they're probably, I hope, happy that you're on top of them, looking out over this amazing scenery.
1: I'm going to cry. Isn't that an amazing response? That's
0: great. Oh, I'm we're both done. sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't know. We're both sort of sitting there with our eyes like watering. Another, another way of looking at it is the mountain doesn't care where you're from. When it kills you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when it throws you off its side or it throws a rock at your head.
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so that's very
1: true. Um, and so finally, as with all of our guests on HHE Podcast, um, I asked Michael if he had anything that he'd like to promote, any books or, you know, audio books. <laughs> be quite happy to buy one of those. Um, and
0: <laughs> Sleep tape.
3: <laughs> and uh, this was his response. The only thing I'll say to you is try and promote and tell people to go outdoors. Go climb mountains. Go get inspired. Take the moment out to be happy and and, and definitely mountains or whatever adventure you do, that's achievable. So there you go. There's a that's my promotion for you. <laughs> <laughs> what a guy. What a guy. What a guy. Michael
1: Cauley, everyone. Um, so yeah, there you go. Uh, That is the story of the man who was clothed in tweed (laughs) with his hobnail boots (laughs) and 30 feet of
0: rope. (laughs) No experience who went and did the impossible. That was remarkable. There's so much going on there. That was incredible. Oh, hello, sir. Welcome to Several Row Tailors. And how can I help, sir, today? Hello, yes. Well, I'm in need of an outfit. I'm going to climb the north face of the Eiger. What? Ah, the Eiger. Good for sir. Well, first things first, sir is going to need the right footwear. And for a mountain of that magnitude, we would always suggest an oxblood brogue. In a wide fit, secured with a wax cotton lace. Oh, just look how smooth that sole is. Like butter, sir. Indeed. Uh, and it's going to be cold, sir, so with the classic Harris tweed, that is a must. Oh, of course, yes. Now, I'm thinking a blue herringbone with, of course, a three-button front and, dare I say, double-vented at the back. You may dare. Very good, sir. And what about avalanches? I hear they can be quite the palaver. Well, in the case of thousands of tons of snow crashing relentlessly down the mountainside, you will need to be equipped, sir, and we always suggest a simple ascot is the way to go. Alternatively, if sir is of the more modern persuasion, perhaps a day cravat? Provided, of course, that sir was not planning on climbing into the evening. Well, I must say, this all sounds rather splendid. Excellent. So, let's get sir measured up, shall we? And
1: would sir like to be fitted for a casket too? Well, I'm probably going to need it, aren't I?
0: Very likely sir, very likely.
1: And finally, I couldn't leave it there because this has been a bit of a sausage pie, isn't it? It's been a lot of, of men mountain climbers. Surely there weren't women mountain climbers in the 1800s. So before we leave this episode, i want to tell you about one final mountaineer. It is a woman. <gasps> <laughs> a woman by the name of Elizabeth Hawkins Witcher. also known as Mrs. Aubrey LeBlond also known as Lizzie LeBlond. Lizzie LeBlond, that's a great name. It is pretty cool. So this is an Irish pioneer of mountaineering at a time when it was almost unheard of for a woman to climb mountains. So born into an upper-class family, Uh, she was the daughter of Captain Sir St. Vincent Hawkins-Witchhead, Third Baronet, (laughs) his business cards are like 30 centimeters long aren't they (laughs) just a ruler (laughs) yeah and she was related to the dukes of portland so she entered into a family of wealth Uh, she grew up in the southeast of ireland but when her father died leaving no other children the lord chancellor took her on as his ward as they do (laughs) as they do she moved to london she married and she had a child during this time she developed lung complaint and so she started to do some research on what would be best to help her with her breathing. And one of the things that, that she discovered was getting fresh air. So one of the things that she discovered was that the Alps had like all this incredibly fresh air. So she abandoned her London social life and she moved to Switzerland where she learned to climb mountains, getting two thirds of the way up Mont Blanc on her first ever climb. Sadly, she became best known by the public for photos taken of her while she was climbing, dressed in a skirt, uh, which caused a huge scandal in London. Her great aunt wrote about her in the paper, as family should do, saying, "Stop her climbing mountains." That's what it says. <laughs> she is scandalizing. She. <laughs> she is scandalizing all of
0: London and looks like a red Indian. Wow that's oh there's so much to unpack in all of that (laughs) none of it good yeah thanks grand aunt anyway uh, (laughs) that's how i deal with all of my family issues letter to the times every time (laughs) (laughs) my niece is acting in an unbecoming manner stop the unbecoming manner Uh, anyway,
1: t- uh, she didn't want to cause offence. It was just it was easier to climb in in skirts. There's a lot more movement and flexibility in a skirt than there is in wearing a tight pair of trousers. Anyway, all of the controversy was a shame because what it did is it threatened to sort of nullify the huge successes that she was actually having throughout her life. Right, this was something that that carried through everything that she did. Let me tell you a little about uh, those successes. So, Lizzie Leblanc. she conquered Mont Blanc twice. She conquered, in fact, over 100 ascents, of which 20 no one had ever climbed. So there's Charles Barrington doing the Eiger once. She did 20 (laughs) mountains that no one had ever climbed before. She had to buy flags in bulk, I would imagine. (laughs) 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 Um, She explored the Norwegian Arctic and mapped uncharted territory there. She wrote 69 books, seven of which were on mountain climbing. She always carried her camera with her, capturing views, which had never been seen before, as you can imagine. She published over 400 of these photos in various publications uh, around the world. World. she developed and printed her own work often in terrible conditions up mountains and she sold them in aid of charity or gave them as gifts uh, and prizes at like mountaineering events unfortunately side note much of the photography has been lost i think there's like one collection in a museum somewhere which is such a shame but not content with still images, Elizabeth then went ahead and became one of the world's first female filmmakers, making and producing 10 documentaries of her alpine adventures, covering topics like tobogganing and ice hockey, which is amazing when you think this is like 1860, 1870. And then when climbing became kind of too physically exhausting for her, she formed the Ladies Alpine Club. And We talked about the Alpine Club earlier, uh, which was like the British Gentleman's Club. Uh, so she created an alternative to the male-only Alpine Club and she became its first president, And she oversaw the gradual and begrudging (laughs) (laughs) acceptance (laughs) and eventual merger of the two clubs. So the clubs now accept lady members as well. So look, to me... I think Lizzie LeBlond was, and still is, a genuine heroic role model. or oh, trailblazer. A trailblazer. She showed real courage throughout her entire life. She provided the inspiration to future generations that, you know, that may have avoided taking part in sort of like these male-dominated activities. She died on the 27th of July, 1934, and she is buried at Brompton Cemetery in London.
0: Well, the the common factor here is people who would not be told that things couldn't or shouldn't be done. And you have to admire these people who will not be constrained. There's something to be admired about those people that just go, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, Speaking as somebody who is easily discouraged in many ways, uh, I I find people who just go, no, I'm going to do that. Well, just because no one's ever done it before, I'd be there going, well, that seems hard, right? And Mm. then these people go, well, no, this doesn't apply to me. I'm going to be the one that does it. And they are. And I find that really ridiculous. Ridiculously inspiring and impressive. It is. And, and
1: you know, the, the metaphor of climbing a mountain and overcoming that obstacle, I think, fits both of those characters so vividly. And when you think of the obstacles that the Irish were facing at the time.
0: Well, even but within that, there's a as sense an inspiration. of inspiration. Everybody has their constraints, right? You might be a super posh, super rich lady, but your constraint is ladies don't climb mountains. So Correct. everybody has their barriers and their walls that need to be broken down or overcome.
1: Right. And, and, and not just doing it for yourself, but giving that sense of purpose and direction for others. absolutely once a thing's been achieved it's no longer unachievable and suddenly i could do that so there you go that is mountain in ireland during 1800 to 1916
0: i thought that was some excellent stories some excellent people stuff that you just don't hear about i thought that was absolutely fabulous and i was thoroughly inspired and moved throughout actually yay yay indeed
1: All right, well, it turns to you, my friend. It does. The eyes of the HHE audience shift in the dark <laughs> in your direction. <laughs> Expectantly.
0: That's okay. But so, I, I need to inter- interject before we run the does later. Oh, I was just about to get it out. I need to reserve that yeah. we are bearing down upon the Christmas season.
1: Do you know what? All I want for Christmas is a Christmas-based podcast. Well, uh, is such a thing even possible, though? It is, yeah, because you know what? Yeah, you know how like we have the Halloween spookulator? Sp- <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> well, we have the Christmas festivator. <laughs> festivator. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love it. The
1: festivator. All uh, right, and look, here we it is. We're now
0: on its little gingerbread wheels, <laughs> little candy cane lever. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> all right here it is what do you think i love it it looks a highly green and red and white it looks edible almost (laughs) Uh, so many lights okay (laughs) i love it
1: this is my favorite of all of the (laughs) (laughs) elaters, the festival (laughs) later okay right here we go here we go i'm gonna pull the lever all
0: right do it all
1: right (laughs) listen to these christmas bells (laughs) Peter. That's right. Your country is... Wildcard. Ooh, that's one of my favourite countries. Yeah, that's my gift to you. Well, it's, <laughs> it's the, the festivalator's gift to you. All right. So you get to... The wild card premise uh, is that you get to pick uh, the country, but the rule is you have to pick at the
0: very end. After I've heard what the other categories are and I get a minute to decide. Yeah, correct. All right. So, all right, let's find out what your time period is. Okay.
1: And your time period is?
2: Ho, ho, ho!
1: Free America, 1776 to present. Ooh, that's good long, good long period. That's yeah. got a lot of potential. OK, well then now to the Christmas-related topic. Here we go. Come on, later Give him something good. Okay, it. And your festive topic is? Oh ho! Ho, ho! santa claus santa claus oh interesting interesting okay. i was hoping for brussels sprouts i don't know why that was
0: <laughs> that was entered in, That was one of the options <laughs> i would have and honestly i would have chosen belgium just as a sort of word association thing <laughs>
1: okay so now over to you you've got one minute to decide a country oh you've got country in 1776 to present and santa claus because you could go obvious here
0: I don't want to go obvious. I don't want to go obvious, but do I want to go obvious? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, Ooh. Oh, I mean, I'm, oh, this is pick, uncomfortable. You could pick Hawaii. New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously.
1: I don't know why I've done that. Santa Claus in New Zealand. From 1776
0: to present, it's too late. It's logged in. I don't know why I did it. I feel regret immediately. <laughs> well, thanks, Festivalator. Thank you, Festivalator.
1: See you, you next year. We should have fed it like cookies and milk and and mince pies. Oh, lovely mince. That's what it runs on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so on that potentially regrettable decision point <laughs> that's our show for the week i would like to take a moment to again say thank you ryan i really enjoyed those stories it was great i love it when we uncover something that's not necessarily hidden i'm sure people were aware obviously the events happened but we can bring some focus to something that was largely unknown so thank you so much for that my pleasure uh, and thank you audience for listening uh, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just want to say hello reach out to us on social media you can come to our website H E podcast com or you can email us at and Ryan at We'd love to hear from you and you never know you might end up featuring on a future show.
1: Yeah one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review us and you can do that on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation it really helps us uh, to sort of help bring the show to, to new listeners and new people.
0: If you're a social media person, if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us. We are at HHE Podcast. Subscribe to that. And we we do these one-minute videos twice a week or so. And they're kind of fun. And you'll get an alert when they go up. That's right. And uh, we're going to be back again soon with The Verdict. We will indeed. In the meantime, if you can't get enough, obviously you can't. There's so much to enjoy. Check out the backpack... The (laughs) backpack... backpacker? (laughs) I was thinking of Dursley, and then the words back passage came into my head. (laughs) In the meantime, if you can't get enough of the show, check out our back catalogue of episodes in which you can find in the podcast app, YouTube, or the website, again, hhepodcast.com. All right. So, huge thanks to Ryan. That was an excellent episode. Thank you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is, you've been listening to...
1: Happen Everywhere.
0: Ryan.